I'm Grant. I'm Lena. And welcome to History Honeys. The podcast where a married couple teaches each other about cool stuff in the past. Hello, everybody. I hope you're having a good day. Yeah. Are you not having a good day? Well, I just want to check in with people because we're about to talk about the Great Depression. Oh, well, we've done that before. Yeah. No, I don't think we have, have we, specifically. Have we not specifically? Oh, dang. Well, there's a topic we need to dive into. All right. So here goes. Uh, the Great Depression began about... 80 years ago this year, hooray everybody, uh, with a collapse in stock prices, banks failing, and massive unemployment. You know, the, the stock market crash was uh, mid to late October, so we're right around the, the 80th anniversary. Yeah. A few years later, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt was elected, promising to, you know, fix it. Uh, and his response to the crisis was the New Deal, this series of programs and regulations, basically everything he did in his first term, you can put under this big umbrella, the New Deal. Mm -hmm. the, the New Deal remains a major part of American society. You, you've got things like Social Security and uh, the FDIC insuring your bank deposits continuing to this day. Mm-hmm. But we're going to talk about uh, a different legacy it left behind, the art programs involved. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. So the New Deal's architects had three goals. They called them the three R's, right? Relief, recovery, and reform. Mm-hmm. And part of relief was, was getting people jobs. There, there are millions and millions of people unemployed. We're going to uh, help them put food on their families by providing Food jobs. on their family? Yeah. Like, here's a tomato, going to place it on your forehead? This is what happens when I quote George W. Bush for a joke. <laughs> I'm just going to set this piece of bread right here. Mm -hmm. That's what he said in the early 2000s. <laughs> oh, boy. He got reelected. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But their their big fix for unemployment was the, the simplest direct route, give people jobs. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah. Uh, the, the Build uh, roadways yeah. down uh, in Key West. Mm -hmm. Did you skip three lines ahead in my notes? No, I just thought about that. Okay. <laughs> so everybody who has studied like social problems and how to fix them has, has come to the same basic uh, uh, solution that the direct solution is the most efficient and effective and cost-effective way. So, like, if you want to fix homelessness, you give people homes. Yeah. If, if you want to fight hunger, you give people food. Yes. Give health care to everyone, and there is not a crisis of people uh, either being sick or being bankrupted because they got sick. Yeah. It's just that easy. So uh, these employment programs had two models. The, the first model was to uh, establish a huge job to be done and contract with private companies who would then in turn have to hire people to do the jobs. And they would hire them as they saw fit because they're private companies. Yeah. Uh, that was how the Public Works Administration operated. Uh, some of its big uh, uh, jobs include the Hoover Dam and Grand Coulee Dam. Mm -hmm. Big jobs, if I've ever seen them. Uh, Detroit's sewage disposal system. And, yes, the Overseas Highway we talked about last episode. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the second model was to set a goal of people to hire and requirements for their hiring, the, the big one being that they are on the unemployment rolls seeking relief. Yeah. And look for useful projects they could do. Okay. 
So that's how the Works Progress Administration operated and its many constituent programs. Uh, their big project was the Tennessee Valley Authority, but they weren't so much about big projects. It was finding thousands and thousands of smaller things. What's the Tennessee Valley Authority? Uh, that was a body that basically electrified uh, the, the Middle America. Oh! They built many, many dams and ran that's... many, many generators across the Tennessee River Valley. Okay. Now I'm just thinking of what brother we're at, though. Yes. Yeah. That is exactly... <laughs> like, the, the WPA is in the background of that film whenever uh, Ulysses Everett McGill is talking about them electrifying the South. Yeah. He's talking about WA... WPA programs. Yep. I just didn't know that the, the Tennessee Valley Authority was like mm -hmm. the name. Yeah, I, I don't know if the state that the film is set in uh, specifically is under that under the TVA, but something very much like it at the very yeah. least. Yes. But again, we're talking about arts. Arts. And the first specific arts program uh, in the New Deal was the Public Works of Art Project. That's a weird name. Or plap. Plap. It ran for seven whole months, starting in late 1933. Is that good or bad for these projects? It's the shortest any of them ran that I'm going to talk about. Okay. But it was made to be temporary from the beginning. Okay. Uh, it was administered by one Edward Ned Bruce. Ned Bruce? I like Ned. We're going to talk about Ned for a while. Ned was an artist himself. For a while, at least. He, he began his career as a, a businessman traveling the world. And as he did, he saw a lot of art and thought, I want to do that. Mm -hmm. So he studied for basically the entire 1920s in Italy while he was also building his collection of art. And when he got back to America, he, he started displaying his works and, and started to become a, a very well-respected landscape artist. Uh, I, I looked at some of his pictures and like there's this really impressive sense of scale, just like, which is helped by his teeny tiny cows. Teeny tiny cows. Very small cows I in want, these paintings. I want to see the teeny tiny cows. <laughs> How tiny. Oh, they're very small. Compared to the whole landscape, cows are itty bitty. So, so just as he was poised for commercial success to be like a self-sustaining, successful artist, the depression hits. No, Nobody's buying landscapes anymore. No. So he became a lobbyist for the sugar industry. Oh. And that's why he was in Washington making friends known as, you know, that artist guy. Yeah. So when we're looking for somebody who can administer an arts program, oh yeah, my good buddy Ned. Mm hmm So Plap was part of the <laughs> Treasury Department. Because the Treasury Department was in charge of building all government buildings. Mm -hmm. that's, that's just where responsibility was. The, the PWAP, their, their charge was, was to create works of art to put in government or other public buildings, and they had to depict an American scene. Ah. So over 3,700 professional artists were employed to make nearly 16,000 individual works across those mere seven months. That's a lot. And they did it all to earn about $40 a week. Okay. Back then, it's a lot of money. Mm -hmm. A good amount of money. Especially with all that deflation going on, which is another thing. They're like, oh, the fiscal policy is going to fix the deflation. Like, the New Deal is a lot. There's a lot. We're yeah. looking at one little slice. 
the grandest examples of, of Plapp's work are the 25 large murals inside San Francisco's Coit Tower. It's this big tower uh, in a park, stark, smooth concrete. Like you, You'd know it if you see it. They also made the monument outside Griffith Observatory in Los Angeles. Also in Los Angeles, uh, the, the monument at the gateway to the Hollywood Bowl began as a Plapp project. Yeah. But it continued with other sources of funding because it took a lot longer than seven months to build. Yeah. Yeah. So big pieces, large pieces like this, you know, 25-piece murals, huge monuments. Those are, are favored uh, for a few reasons. For one, big buildings and big spaces need big art. Mm-hmm. You're not going to have like an 8 by 10 canvas like, there we go, right in this grand rotunda of, of the courthouse. It just doesn't, it doesn't work. Yeah. But also big art employs a lot of artists for a lot of time. Yeah. So you're, you're not only getting your, your master artists, they're employing staffs of assistants and draftspeople. Yeah. And you're, you're filling and, up those roles. And it's less projects that take up more time. Mm-hmm. So you're not having to, like, find more and more projects. And also, I just named either three or 27 of these 16,000 works, depending yeah. on how you count it. Yeah. So, like, it, it's also which ones get remembered in, you know, histories like this one. Yes. California's, apparently. Apparently, yeah. Uh PWAP was temporary, like I said, because its funding came from a, a temporary program, the Civil Works Administration. Mm-hmm. It was just made uh, to provide people work during the, the winter of uh, 33 to 34. So Ned Bruce ran a successful program, and he went to work organizing new arts programs to continue that work. Two of them, in fact, the Section of Painting and Sculpture and its subsidiary program, the Treasury Relief Arts Project. Mm-hmm. Uh, the section, as it was called, continued to fill new public buildings with murals and sculptures, as you might guess from the name, section of painting and sculpture. Yeah, it's pretty self-explanatory there. But unlike other programs, it uh, worked by awarding lump sum commissions to artists that were selected through competition. Oh, so 1% of the budget for each new federal building was set aside for the section to use for art. Oh. Uh, and there were a lot of new federal buildings being built because that was a way for the government to put a lot of people to work. Yeah. Uh, a, a lot of bricklayers and iron workers and uh, uh, all of the people you need to build a thing. Mm-hmm. But also 1% going to artists to decorate a thing. Yeah. Uh, works were supposed to be suited to the location, right? Like in your guidelines for submitting to these competitions, artists were told, think of the community as your patron, not us here in the Treasury Department. Yeah. Uh, and artists that tried to understand the community they would create for had a better shot at winning that commission because they had a hand in the selection process as well. Ah. Uh-huh. Now, that other uh, uh, program, the Treasury Relief Arts Program, was administered under the section and under Bruce, uh, but was funded by the WPA. And we'll talk about what that meant for them later. Their mission was to fill existing buildings with art. Mm -hmm. The section's handling new buildings. Trap is filling old buildings. Yeah. Uh, Their largest project is a 23,000 square foot mural series in uh, the Alexander Hamilton Customs House in New York City. 
It's pretty big. It's pretty big. But most of their work went to post offices and housing projects that were built uh, under PWA. Oh. So between these three projects, Pwamp, The Section, and Trap, people are going to think we're cursing up a storm, honestly. Every time you say it, it just makes me laugh. So between those three projects, 1,300 American cities plus had their post office decorated by a new mural. Ooh. Uh, post offices were the, the favored target, I guess, because it was the federal building most visited by most people. Yeah. Like, and there's like one everywhere. Exactly. In your day-to-day or, you know, weekly or so errands, you're going to go to the post office. That's not necessarily true for the federal courthouse. Yeah. Depending on what you do for a living, I guess. <laughs> but for, for most people. Well, and in a lot of places, you they, they have a post office, but they don't have these other places. Right. It's how you get to the people. Yes. So you've got the, this legacy of thousands, like over 1,400 uh, 12 by 5 foot pieces in communities in every state in the union, including two that weren't states at the time, <laughs> Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands, all hopefully celebrating the local culture and history as part of one unified American tapestry. Yeah. I say hopefully because these were mostly made by out-of-towners who won the, the competition. Yeah. Sure, sure, they went through the, the process and their, their sketch was selected and won the competition. But there's a difference in the fine details between the sketch and a finished piece. What looked like, you know, a, a charming depiction of uh, rural life to some eyes might look like a stereotype of country bumpkins to other eyes. Yes, this is true. Many of these pieces have unfortunately degraded. Others have been moved because they outlived the building they were hung in. Ah, uh, yeah, that happens. Uh, but many also still serve their purpose. Like you can find lists of these uh, uh, surviving murals and where to see them, whether they're still in a post office or they moved to a courthouse or a, a library or a museum. A lot of them are now preserved in art museums. Yeah. So what was this art like, though? Like, artistically? What is the aesthetic? I bet you're going to tell me. I am going to tell you. We're going to talk about social realism. Ooh. It was the in-vogue style of New Deal art. <laughs> so realism, capital R, realism as, as an art movement, began as a reaction to movements like romanticism, but also impressionism. Uh, trying to move people toward reflecting life as it is through art and not this idealistic picture. So realistic. Yeah. I mean, not necessarily photorealism. That's no. a technique. But realism as a movement was like, this is the real stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So social realism, that, that subset under the, the realism family, specifically highlights things like class conditions, not just showing the working class and the poor, but presenting them in a way that emphasizes the power structure that creates poverty and creates class, class divides. Yes. So that sort of thing was kind of on people's minds in the middle of this massive wave of poverty and layoffs caused by financial speculation among the wealthy. Yeah, you that, can't understand why they would be thinking about that. And the, the mid-30s that we're talking about was also sort of an incubator period for other forms of art like abstract expressionism, which wouldn't really even be called that for years to come, but people were doing it. Yeah. 
But nobody wants to buy that. <laughs> like, non-representational art is never going to win these competitions run by, like, the mayor and the Chamber of Commerce of Little Rock, Arkansas. Yeah. Like, some things are never going to change. So social realism is distinct from, but clearly very related to, socialist realism. Mm-hmm. The uh, state-mandated uh, official style of, of Stalin's Soviet Union. Yes. And also uh, very popular across the, the Eastern Bloc, uh, but also very closely tied to the Mexican muralists, your, your Diego Rivera's mm-hmm. and, and that whole movement. So when you look at these murals and, and other pieces that fit under social realism, you're going to see anonymous people surviving by their labor. You're going to see people building great things together. Like, it, it's not like, okay, we're going to build this big old dam. Okay, 1% of it has to go to art. Let's have massive mural of the people building the dam. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. One of the big emblematic examples is not necessarily painting, but photography. In a project that would fit under our topic today, but I just ran out of pages and time. Yeah. The Farm Security Administration's Documentary Photography Project. Oh, boy. Which documented American life during the Depression. Think of any photograph you have seen of mm. Depression America. Yeah. I will bet you anything it is from the FSA project. That makes sense. Because I was... Especially because, I don't know, I feel like there probably weren't that many photographers whose dis- main decision was, like, I'm going to go photograph the Dust Bowl. There, I'm going to go photograph the Dust Bowl and get paid. <laughs> there were 11 people whose job was to go photograph the Dust Bowl. Yeah. And they came back with thousands of images, and they're all incredible. Yes. But I meant more, like, on their, like, there weren't 11 people just doing it. Right. It, they were doing it for a reason. hmm Yeah. So the majority of New Deal art, and therefore New Deal art jobs, uh, were created by programs within the previously mentioned Works Progress Administration, the WPA. Mm -hmm. This was a work relief program that brought together things that needed to be done and people in need of employment and federal funding to sort of merge those two together and make it work. Yeah. As far as non-art projects go, uh, we're talking about making 10,000 bridges across the country, uh, an archaeological survey that rediscovered pre-Columbian Native American societies, uh, again, electrifying rural America, and compiling the Handbook of Mathematical Functions. Oh. They, they got a bunch of out-of-work mathematicians and had them just crunch numbers for years to fill hundreds and hundreds of pages so nobody else had to do those math problems anymore. Oh, boy. They could just check the tables. Oh, It's a fantastic resource. It's considered the beginning of the computing age, and it came from the WPA. Nice. But art, art, right. We're talking about art. We're talking about art. (laughs) This is why your episode's so long. Yes. Couldn't stand topic. No. So to qualify for for working for the WPA, to to be hired for one of these projects, uh, people had to meet several criteria. One, they had to be between the ages of 18 and 65. Mm-hmm. They had to be an American citizen. They had to be able-bodied and unemployed. Mm-hmm. And they had to be registered as seeking relief from a WPA-approved agency. Okay. Like I mentioned earlier, the TRAP, the Treasury Relief Arts Program that made murals for existing buildings, was administered by the section but funded by the WPA, which means all of its artists had to meet those criteria as well. Oh, okay. While, you know, section winners could just be 
out-of-work artists who submitted a sketch to the competition, etc. Okay. Work placement was done. So once you were on these roles, and then there were people looking for people to fill job roles, R-O-L-L versus R-O-L-E, placement was performed so people could continue in their own fields. Mm -hmm. It would have been easier... And many uh, people who didn't like these programs argued that what they should have done was just like, okay, why not make 11,000 bridges? Mm-hmm. Why, why do we need to have all these musicians making music? They could like be digging trenches and, and uh, connecting the country together like everybody else. Because we need to keep culture alive. And it also <laughs> takes a lot more time to train, train people to build bridges. That's true. Who've never built a bridge before. As Hallie Flanagan, the director of one of these programs that we'll talk about later, put it, For the first time in the relief experiments of this country, the preservation of the skill of the worker, and hence the preservation of their self-respect, became important. Mm -hmm. But why did we have all of these hoops you had to jump through? Why did you have to prove you were of this age, of this class of ability, a citizen, on these roles? Well, there were uh, 20 million unemployed during the Depression. Yeah. But there weren't 20 million jobs that they could uh, get, that they could find. No. Or if there were, there wasn't wages for 20 million people that even uh, the Roosevelt Coalition could put through, could get a vote on through Congress. Yeah. So they had to to shave off the number. And when they only looked at able-bodied breadwinners seeking work... That brought the number down to three and a half million. A little easier to digest. Right. You cut out the kids, you cut out the elderly, you cut out the people who have multiple uh, uh, job seekers under a single roof, etc. You come down to three and a half million. Mm-hmm. At its peak, the WPA employed 3.3 million. Okay. So Got real close, and eight and a half million had WPA work at some point over the eight-year existence of the agency. Yeah. Or administration. That's what the A stands for. <laughs> WPA programs also had requirements to hire without discrimination, according to race, creed, color, religion, or political affiliation. Well, that's a little bit of a different thing for the times. Yeah. Yeah. So one month after the WPA was formed, it began Federal Project Number 1, the umbrella term for its arts programs. Mm -hmm. This was the first time federal money was used to create and promote culture. Yay! Yay! (laughs) So it operated under two principles. The first first was (laughs) that in the time of need, the artist, no less than the manual worker, is entitled to employment as an artist at the public expense. Nice. If manual workers are entitled to, to work for federal money on all of those construction projects, then artists are as well. People really need to channel this idea with how <laughs> they pay artists nowadays. The, the second principle... Work for exposure. You'll be fine. <laughs> it's amazing what me. we've forgotten. My Instagram has 700 followers. Thank you very much. That should feed your cat. Yeah, is that buying you food? Yeah. (laughs) The second, that the arts, no less than business, agriculture, and labor, are and should be the immediate concern of the ideal commonwealth. Mm -hmm. To to put it in less grand terms, Secretary of Commerce Harry Hopkins uh, said, hell, they've got to eat too. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 
So we're going to take a quick break and be back uh, to talk about all of those programs within Federal One. Okay. Okay, now how is everybody doing? I'm not doing well. I just dropped something really heavy on my foot. (laughs) Podcasting is a full contact sport. Yes. So uh, we were going to talk about Federal One. Okay. And Federal One included, as you might guess, something called the Federal Art Project. Ah, this thing we're talking about. This is the branch dedicated to the visual arts, you know, fine arts and practical arts and, you know... Your, your painters, your sculptors, your set designers. You know, I never liked the term fine art. Yeah. I feel like it's very derogatory towards other art. <laughs> it's very judgmental. Yeah. Yes. Uh, the, the Federal Art Project was the largest slice out of Federal One. Uh, its director was Holger Cahill, uh, who was born under the name Svein Christian Bjarnarsson. <laughs> I can understand why he changed it, but I don't understand why he changed it to Holger. I, I don't know. <laughs> he has a fascinating life. He ran away from home several times. Yeah. Uh, had, That's hard because he was from like Iceland. He was from Iceland originally, yes. Did uh, he run away from home while living in Iceland? No, or, oh, okay. only after his family immigrated to, to okay, that's not the American as farmland. I mean, like, I'm thinking he's like... Catching a boat across, like, that's harder to run away from that Iceland. Because <laughs> there's not much of it. Yeah, and there's only so many ways off. <laughs> but uh, a- as he grew up, he had a number of jobs, including journalism, which is how he became an art writer, which is how he eventually became director of uh, the Museum of Modern Art in New York. Oh. So if any project needed art, the Federal Art Project was where they went to get it. So they uh, were in cooperation with a whole lot of WPA stuff, uh, including other of the art projects. If the music project was putting on a, a concert, they went to the art project for a poster. You know? mm-hmm. Huge, huge amounts of posters all for all sorts of uh, federal projects and programs. Uh, they did art for non-government buildings oh. because the Treasury Department's programs had those covered. Yeah. For for any of these like commissions, for any of these works, the client would pay for materials and the WPA would pay for the artist's wage. Okay. It was a great way to make your art investment go a lot farther than it would without this program, right? Yeah. It would be cool if we had a giant sculpture, but I can't pay an artist to do that. I can buy rocks though. <laughs> but but besides, you know, your your uh art installations and, and other things like that. There was a huge, huge variety of projects, like the Milwaukee Handicraft Project, which employed 5,000 women in Milwaukee to make all sorts of, you know, arts and crafts. They made stuff for schools and for hospitals. There's apparently still, like, chairs in use at the Milwaukee Public Library that came from the Handicrafts Project. That they, like, sculpted or painted? Yeah. Oh, Okay. But they also did fine artwork that kept those abstract expressionists alive before anyone, you know, knew what the heck that was when it came to prominence in the late 40s. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, 16% of artists employed uh, in the arts project were um, were working in arts education. Mm-hmm. So that, that means they established dozens of community arts centers all across the country uh, that were opened by the Federal Arts Project. Uh, some survive to this day, like Chicago's Southside Community Arts Center, which also happens to be the first black art museum in the United States. Oh. It was inspired by another arts project center, uh, the Harlem Community Arts Center, but that closed in 1942. Uh, However, the Harlem Arts Alliance that that grew out of it is still active to this day. Okay. The Walker Art Center in Minneapolis uh, was also a product of the uh, FAP. It's a contemporary art museum and was home to the first Internet Cat Video Festival in 2012. Ah, which which made an appearance here (laughs) in Chicago. It's, I mean, that's contemporary art. Yeah. Uh, the Roswell Museum and Art Center uh, has its roots in uh, FAP, which is home to early modernists and Native American works, and is pretty much the only local attraction that it isn't about aliens. I was going to ask, I was like, okay, do they like keep it pretty clear of that, or is there just a whole <laughs> wing that's like alien pictures? One must wonder. <laughs> I would like to go there. Now, their, their largest single project, the the, the biggest one item that that came out of FAP was the Index of American Design. Mm -hmm. This index comprises 18,000 meticulous watercolor reproductions of American material culture that that were created by anonymous craftspeople over, you know, the centuries of of post-colonization America. Uh Uh-huh. So it's it's a work of both artistic archaeology and preservation, but also a project founded by modernists to influence industrial design, to, to find the forms to become abstracted for the next stage of what America could look like. Mm-hmm. Holger Cahill, director, uh, said, quote, The index in bringing together thousands of particulars from various sections of the country tells the story of American hand skills and traces intelligible patterns within that story. So from this point on, the the design of furniture and silver, glass, stoneware, textiles, tavern signs, ships, figureheads, cigar store figures, carousel horses, toys, tools, and weather vanes, Mm -hmm. among others, (laughs) would be preserved for all who could find a use for it. You've just got this great guidebook of American design tradition for artists and educators and historians and the public. It, it's public domain. You you own that. Everybody listening to this, in the U.S. at least, yeah, it's yours. There you go. Uh, this project employed about 300 artists at any given time, and it ran for six years. I mean, it takes a while to draw that many things. Yeah. It, yeah. it, it takes a while to make 18,000 watercolor reproductions. Yeah. All art project pieces are public property. They cannot be sold or gifted to private collections. Yeah. It's yours. That's your art. But I can't keep it because I'm private. Yeah. (laughs) But it's mine. It's yours. You just have to share it with hundreds of millions of other people. (laughs) It's also theirs. Yes. And I think that that's where that's the great joy of it. The Federal Music Project uh, employed musicians, conductors, and composers, but also researched American music traditions, inventing the field of ethnomusicology. Yeah. It was directed by Nikolai Grigorievich Sokolov, 
He didn't change his name. No, he no. he kept it. He liked it. Uh, he was the musical director of a number of orchestras and founded the Cleveland Symphony Orchestra. He, he made a point in all of his orchestras to hire women musicians and ensure that they were paid equally to the men. I like this Nikolai guy. He's all right. Uh, he spoke publicly about getting public school children to hear orchestras play. Getting even better. But his focus with uh, FMP was to get American musicians jobs, not to promote American music. Oh. So programs were tailored more toward European art music, and any focus on folk or vernacular music came from regional directors or the state-level programs. Uh. He was pretty happy just getting every like everybody who could pick up a, a instrument to then go play that instrument with a few dozen of their closest friends, as long as they were playing, you know, Beethoven, Bach, Brahms, anyone Ooh. with a B. <laughs> He had his tastes, you know? You, you, the MoMA guy wants to find a home for uh, Rothko before he's Rothko. And the, the symphony guy wants to do European symphonies. I guess. The landscape painter in the treasury department wants to make sure everyone's painting American scenes. You know, these, these people's perspectives have a big weight on how the programs are run. Yes. So, of course, uh, the, the FMP funded bands who would then get recorded. The recordings were just given out to radio stations. <laughs> uh, new, new pieces were commissioned, which the bands would play. So they needed a venue. Well, that just might be a WPA uh, uh, project to build a band shell. Uh, oh, well, if we're going to have this new festival, we need a poster. Bring in the arts project. Well, now we need to hire copyists to, for all the you know music to go to everyone in the orchestra. We need to hire some music binders. All of these projects, again, part of the, the aim for bigger stuff. Yeah. Because there's knock-on effects. Yes. But the FMP also introduced music education to schools. Uh, the, the reason that for decades and decades to come, you know, your, your average public school uh, uh, education was meant to include uh, arts and music is because of the Federal Arts Project and the Federal Music Project. Maybe we should work on that more. Maybe, maybe. No child left behind. Uh, so at its peak, the FMP employed 16,000 musicians for performances that reached 3 million people per week at little to no cost, and underwrote half the music being played on the radio. Wow. In uh, Sokolov's 1936 annual report, he listed 162 new symphonies and orchestras, which employed nearly 6,000 people. That's a lot of people. And that's not counting the, the new bands and solo projects and, and copyist programs, just the symphonies alone. In one year alone, it was the 36th annual report for this program that was founded in 35. Yeah. Uh, it also paid for books to be written like Charles Seeger's study in, Studies in Musicology or Roy Harris's Let's Make Music, which itself began as an educational radio program. Yeah. For the curious, Charles Seeger was both uh, the, the deputy director and the, the person most interested in using the Federal Music Project to find American music. Mm -hmm. And yes, he's the father of Pete Seeger, the, the great folk musician. Yeah. Pete Seeger followed in a tradition that his dad helped, you know, create <laughs> a, a record and study of. Yeah. Good job, Pete. 
Now we get to the Federal Theater Project. Yay! Federal Theater Project's great. I think uh, while I was looking this up, it was my favorite for a number of reasons. <laughs> it was created to fund live artistic performances and entertainment programs and employ the artists needed to make them. Naturally. It had a motto. Yeah. It had a motto that was taken from an inscription on a, a Greek theater, like the, the building, not the institution, uh, that dates to the third century. Oh. We let out these works on the vote of the people. Oh. That's cool. Yeah. It was directed by Hallie Flanagan, who we mentioned oh, before yeah. the break. Yeah. Uh, before this, she was a professor at Vassar. Uh, she was very interested in modern and contemporary and experimental forms of theater. Me too. That's what happens if you get someone from the, the dawn, I guess, of theater in academia rather than a Broadway hit maker or someone else in the commercial side of theater. Yes. We're not just going to play the hits, you know? Yeah. There's going to be some Shakespeare, but, you know, there are other writers, too, who are, I don't know, alive. <laughs> Love me some Shakespeare, but lots of other stuff out there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they organized themselves by establishing five regional theater centers. Mm -hmm. New York City, naturally. Yep. Uh, Boston for the East, Chicago for the Midwest. Obviously. Los Angeles for the West, and New Orleans for the South. They operated in every state with enough unemployed theater people to fill a production. <laughs> which is not every state. <laughs> Nowadays, you totally could. Nowadays, you could. But uh, they were in the, like, 30-something, low 40s range. Yeah. Which, hey, when there's 48 states, is still pretty good. Uh, the regional focus was supposed to democratize and decentralize theater. Productions should come from and speak to the people that are there, there to see them, because it's live, right? Mm-hmm. This was also meant to incubate new American forms and styles. Yes. Let's see what happens if we let Los Angeles people make a Los Angeles theater and, and how that grows and changes. What, what, what happens? So theater had been in decline even before the Depression, in part because a ticket for a live show was several times what a movie house was charging yeah. for a full night's entertainment. Yeah. Double feature, cartoon, newsreel, the whole shebang. Popcorn's cheaper. Uh, FTP shows were low cost. 65% of all productions were entirely free of charge. Mm -hmm. Just walk right in, baby. Yeah. Uh, they produced 3,000 radio programs as well per year on commercial radio stations across their radio divisions in, in 11 uh, American states. Oh. Now, Hallie Flanagan was fiercely anti-discriminatory in how the FTP was to be run. Mm -hmm. There were project managers that got fired for uh, trying to enforce segregation when their troops were traveling. Good. Yeah. I'm glad they got fired. <laughs> if you wanted to keep your job, it was expected that you would risk being arrested by the state of Texas uh, rather than, you know, segregate your, your uh, technical workers into white and black on the train car. Yeah. Yeah. Groups that could support non-English productions did. So there was Spanish theater and German theater and a, a pretty large share of Yiddish theater. Make, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. But the, the biggest part of this non-discriminatory uh, plural picture of America was the, uh, uh, was the Negro Theater Unit. Mm -hmm. 
it was 1935. That was the... That's the, what they called it. That was not what you're calling it. That was the self-applied term among the black community in 1935. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but the Negro Theater Unit was a network inside FTP with headquarters in 22 different cities, uh, including two of the four th- federal theaters in New York City. Mm-hmm. Now, the biggest innovation to the theatrical form was the living newspaper. Yeah. I asked you about this because I know you did the modern theater history class yes. in your acting degree. Yes. And you had some familiarity with the idea of the living newspaper. Yes. I remember we talked about it. I've kind of forgotten about it. It, it has been a number of years since it's, your it's collegiate been, days. It's been like a decade since I graduated <laughs> and I took that class sophomore year. <laughs> it's been a while. So so the way the living newspaper would work is that writers, oftentimes out-of-work journalists, would then become playwrights. They, they'd clip out news stories and turn them into plays, presenting current events to the public mm-hmm. through the lens of, you know, people, relatable people living relatable lives caught up in things like uh, farm policy and what the Supreme Court thinks about it. Yeah. Or substandard housing or the need for broad and militant unions or the history of syphilis and what we can do to to curb this deadly plague. Yeah. It was also before penicillin. (laughs) Watch you keep going. I feel like, though, we might have had to have done, like, our own living newspaper project. Mm -hmm. That seems like a thing we would have done in that class. (laughs) I was it, everything in that class was just too overshadowed by Dadaism that that's really all I remember. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Sp- the the syphilis one specifically was a uh, Chicago premiere, and it then toured in four or five other cities around the country. Oh, we got a hit on our hands. Syphilis was a big hit, in a lot of ways. Uh, <laughs> but uh, productions used projections yes. and. and Sudden light and sound cues and shadow puppets and and other techniques to just grab attention. So what you're telling me is that Chicago storefront theater has really uh, held to this idea. Absolutely. (laughs) Storefront theater is the best theater. Other identifying features of the living newspaper are the little man character who is you know, supposed to be the everyman swept up and and experiencing this whole thing. Like, to take the, the syphilis one as an example, the little man is the character who represented everyone with syphilis in the world. Yeah. Also, the voice of the newspaper, a disembodied offstage voice, giving the, the context and the framing to the story. These plays, if you couldn't guess, were very in that vein of social realism. Yeah. The furthest right they got, uh, as far as the the political spectrum, is saying that the Tennessee Valley Authority is very good. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That that was their right-wing perspective, is that these New Deal programs are nice. Yeah. (laughs) The the Federal Theater Project was the first to end across Federal One, killed by Congress. Of course it was. Martin Dees Jr., who is director of the House Committee on Un-American Activities, led the attack. Of course he did. FTP was responsible for 830 major works over its four years of operation. And the congressional record shows that 81 of them, so roughly one in 10, were called out by name in criticisms of the project, either in committee meetings or hearings or just on the floor of Congress. They just don't like theater. 
Only 29 of those 81 were original productions by the project. The rest are made up by, you know, revivals or, or work from community groups or old classics. Five of them that were called out never actually made it to stage. So how do they know what to call them out for? You know, stuff. It's It's got stuff in it. It's got stuff we don't like. I heard. I heard from my cousin. The living newspapers were met with particular criticism. In fact, the first one ever written was one of those five that never made it to air. Uh, it was about uh, the, the Ethiopian crisis, right? The, the invasion of Ethiopia by Mussolini's Italy. Mm-hmm. And it included Benito Mussolini as a character. And that's what Congress got them on. They're like, okay, we cannot allow something with federal funding to depict a foreign leader because that could it, it could make a whole mess of problems. Uh. That, that's the stated reason for going after the play. So they they pulled it. A lot of people in, in the New York office quit. It was it was a whole thing about, you know, artistic integrity and censorship. Yeah. These were proud and active activist artists. I love them. But one uh, play that also brought the heat down that just I have to wonder why is a children's piece called Mother Goose Comes to Town. What? They, they had an issue with Mother Goose. They had an issue with Mother Goose. I wish I could have found more detail. Well, that town, town's if, dangerous, and Mother Goose shouldn't be spending her time around such ruffians. If anyone knows, please tell me what their beef is with the goose. But uh, Dees's committee also had issues with Flanagan's administrative goals, saying, quote, racial equality forms a vital part of the communist dictatorship and practices. Oh, my God. If you're too nice to black people, you're a communist. So funding was cut entirely and abruptly on June 30th, 1939, adding 8,000 people back onto those unemployment rolls. Great. Good job, Congress. So that brings us to the Federal Writers Project. It uh, employed an estimated 10,000 people over its lifetime, directed by former journalist, playwright, and editor Henry Alsberg. So he knew a thing about writing. He did a lot of different kinds of it. Yeah. Hundreds of works reached publication through this office across a whole lot of different styles of writing. We, we had textbooks. We had novels. Uh, they were submitting things to, to literary magazines and being paid a living wage uh, to, to do so by the FWP. But the, the big one, the, the big solid brick of writing that you can point to is the American Guide series. They were also huge bestsellers. These books chronicled the history, culture, and geography of every single state and uh, every community in that state. It was the Wikipedia of its time. Absolutely. Uh, There are also 41 cities that got their own guides that went into greater detail. And not like the big ones like you'd think. Like there isn't a Chicago guide to. There's a Cairo, Illinois, though. Okay. I think one of the biggest cities, at least in in today's population, that got one of these is Philadelphia. Philadelphia got one. But like LA, New York, San Francisco didn't. Weird. Yeah. Now, just for reference, the uh, American Guide uh, series, their their book on Illinois is around 700 pages, including the index. That's the size of Les Mis. It's a big baby. It's a big book baby. 
That's why it took 6,000 writers uh, over the course of this project. Each one was selected from that state's unemployment rolls. So mm-hmm. they found a local writer. For one, they didn't have to travel as much. Yeah. And two, they, they knew a thing or two. They knew where to start. Yeah. Folklorists also went out into the wild to collect and compile American stories. It's like the, the Brothers Grimm of the U.S., sort of. Yeah. Uh, many songs were also collected in, co- in cooperation with the, the music project. Mm-hmm. A major subset of the, that uh, folklore effort is the Slave Narrative Project, which collected 2,000 firsthand interviews from former slaves, which when all, you know, transcripted and typed out, came to over 10,000 pages. Dang. So uh, slavery being abolished in the, mid, in the mid-1860s and these interviews being done in the mid-1930s, uh, we're generally talking about elderly people recalling their childhoods. Yes. We're also talking about elderly people recalling their childhoods to white strangers. Yeah. Their, their use as objective factual history is imperfect, and anyone who, who does that work is served by acknowledging those potentials for bias. Yeah. But their, their value overall, even in that light, is incalculable, and it's all public domain. Go, go read them. As literature, it's fantastic. Yeah. As a, a way to chart, like, linguistic change. Yeah. Like, there, there are so many things you can do with this massive data set. Yeah. Go, do it, do it, go do it. <laughs> now, the Writers Project was also attacked by Deez's committee. Of course it was. For being un-American. Of course. And a front for, for communism. Oh, yeah, because you're going out talking to people. Obviously, you're telling about your communism. Well, what messages are they putting in these books? What spin are they putting on the labor history of these cities and towns in the American Guides uh, series? Slavery bad. Slavery bad. Uh, and let's find the mix- hidden message in every fifth letter <laughs> in every third paragraph. They really, really did not like uh, any time striking people were, were put in a positive light. In the American Guide series. They still don't like that. Or any coverage of, you know, socialists or anarchists aside from, like, dripping fangs and, like, uh, uh, being allergic to sunlight. (laughs) They're vampires. They're vampires. (laughs) Alsberg was fired in 1939, uh, around the same time the whole theater project was scuttled, and the writer's project continued on with a slashed budget. Mm Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, uh, Deez's committee had their budget, like, quadruple that year. Oh, that's not, you know, odd. Are they employing 8,000, 10,000 people? I have to ask. I gotta wonder. Probably not. But th- those three surviving arts programs, or two and a half, if you want to be really uh, spicy uh, about that budget cut, they dissolved in 1943 along with the rest of the WPA. Because we were in the middle of World War II, and the war created so many jobs that they weren't considered necessary. Yeah. Those unemployment rolls pretty much dried up. Yeah, because now we just need you all to make bullets. Yeah. Or if if you want a writing job, you can write training manuals for the army. On how to make the bullets. Yeah. (laughs) It's what Stan Lee did. Yeah. The treasury programs happened to end around the same time. In that case, because Ned Bruce had died. Oh, and without him, they, they just didn't find a new director. They didn't continue on. They just sort of got shelved. Yeah. So, dear, what have you learned? 
apparently no matter what you do, you're probably a communist. <laughs> well, it depends on if what you do is reflect history accurately and think that integration is an okay way to go. Wow, I must be a communist. Darling, we already know you're a communist. <laughs> I'm always going to ask if I'm a communist this Christmas. <laughs> you know that. Anyone who believes in the universal dignity of all people and that capitalism must be abolished is my ally. Yeah. I care not about labels beyond that. Yeah. Yes. Okay, mm -hmm. I knew about a lot of aspects of these programs. Mm -hmm. I, I knew that stuff was happening. I knew about other federal relief efforts, mm -hmm. but how many things were actually happening. I mean, the, the easy takeaway is that tens of thousands of people didn't starve, and that's good. Yeah. And that some famous names you might recognize, like Orson Welles and John Steinbeck and Jackson Pollock, got to do their early work in, in these programs. Yeah. And that's nice, too. Yeah. But there's also just a massive amount of publicly owned work, public domain, publicly owned work, documenting and also defining American life. Yeah. Like it, it forged an American character in the same way that like uh, the, the Irish theater movement, part of it was to define what it is to be Irish as, mm -hmm. as an identity. I mean, not that we want, like, a Great Depression to push us into doing this again. But you have to, like, kind of think about, well, if there was, like, federally funded art programs more mm -hmm. than what, you know, does exist. Right. Um, what could be getting done out there for the next generation type mm -hmm. thing? Because like there's so many, like, pockets of, of times where there's that investment mm -hmm. and you get all this amazing, like, research and writing and, and documentation of a time period. And then we get distracted by, like, wars and whatnot. Yeah. And then it, like, will happen again, and then we move on again. Mm -hmm. um, that's just, it's interesting. If there is art to be enjoyed, people will enjoy art. Mm -hmm. And life is better when it is out there in the open and free. Yes. Right? Like, free days at the museums, uh, the, the Grant Park music uh, series. The best best thing in chicago absolutely is millennium park and all the free programming they do for four months out of the year mm -hmm. i mean they do stuff the rest of the year but four months out of the year it is like the cultural center and and we are lucky to have that to, to be in a city that that values that at least to some degree mm -hmm. but there was a, an eight-year period where that was nearly the entire country yeah the benefits of society are the benefits of art uh, of the, this shared experience, the, this mode of communication, media to to reflect and uh, to be reflected on, it's of unmatched and uncalculable value. Yeah. The the reason I did this isn't just like, hey, facts are fun. Uh, I I like pretty pictures and and nice songs, but big problems need big solutions. Mm -hmm. But big solutions don't have to be complex. Yeah. They just have to be big enough find the problem fix the problem directly you just need the will to do it there there is no reason that at our most recent financial crash the, the relief had to go to the financial sector yeah if the problem is everybody is defaulting on their home loan forgive home loans and people keep their houses and we're hunky-dory the the bailout didn't fix anything permanently yeah there, there is no reason that combating climate change 
has just been decades of debate, and we're getting to a point where things may already be irrecoverable. Yeah. It's a lack of imagination, and it's a lack of power in the hands of people with the imagination, with the will. I agree. Good job. (laughs) Anyhow, uh, we're going to take a break and be back with your letters. Okay. Welcome back, everybody. Hello. We have a whole suite of letters. Yes. And last episode, I asked people to share with me their favorite piece of public art. Yes. Uh, We're going to start off with Isaac, who lives in Maryland, which apparently is just covered in the stuff. I guess so. I've never been there, so I don't... I'm going to take Isaac's word on it. But uh, he wants to tell us about Still Life with Spirit and X-Style by Jimmy Durham, which is a car with a rock that crushed it, to, to put it simply. Mm. But Baltimore is also home to the American Visionary Art Museum uh, that Isaac feels a bit of a, a personal connection to with all the time they've spent there. Uh, there's all sorts of uh, sculptures and pieces uh, on the outside of the walls upon the grounds, like uh, Vola Simpson's whirligig and a mirror tree. But the mirror tree was sculpted uh, by Bob Benson, who is actually a friend of Isaac and his father. So that's nice. That mirror tree is really cool. I dig it. I wonder what they do for Christmas. Take all the mirrors off. Yeah. (laughs) Really keep them guessing. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Isaac. Uh, Erica writes in, and for their answer to this prompt, they knew they had to respond because it is the subject of their 10-page research paper (laughs) that they are writing on public art, Uh, and that is about the Crystal Palace dinosaurs. They were made uh, to accompany the Crystal Palace after it was moved from Hyde Park to Sydenham. Erica states that, well, there's a lot of fascinating fascinating things about their creation uh they mostly just love them because they're grossly inaccurate kind of ugly yeah yeah um but england loves them so much that they have gotten never gotten rid of them and they have the highest level of government protection for historical landmarks they're pretty ugly oh be nice to them life is so hard when you're a big lizard that never actually existed they kind of look like really badly molded plastic toys they got a little melty being left in a hot car because paleontology was a little baby science back then they didn't know no better they didn't know thanks erica ramona writes in again to defend the honor of the monster mash nope it doesn't really need it. They're swimming in royalties. <laughs> are, are you also going to stand up for the monster rap, though? The, the mid-80s sequel? Because no one should. It's very bad. <laughs> but the, the bit of public art that Erica wants to talk about is a statue recreating the famed photo, a woman hitting a neo-Nazi with her handbag. Yeah! This is exactly what it sounds like. Uh Folks have probably seen the photograph, but the story is that there's a, a neo-Nazi demonstration in 1985 in Sweden, and the woman is actually a survivor of the Auschwitz camp, mm-hmm. who decided to slap this Nazi with her back. 
So this photo's publication uh, sparked this wide national debate about, you know, the, the proper response to Nazis and, and whether violence is ever justified. Yes, and it is. Sort of, yeah, I mean, thir- 30 years later, I, I think we've... Punch those Nazis, everyone's... hit those Nazis with your purse, shove them in front of a car, do not care. I mean, hitting Nazis is self-defense. <laughs> But the, the debate over this uh, was wide and far-ranging. Uh, it was sparked again once there, there was a uh, statue commissioned, uh, enough that the, the statue was sort of scuttled, and then people started hanging handbags on other statues in support of, of sculpting a woman hitting a neo-Nazi with her handbag. So, like, th- this piece has a, a wide, ha- has a, a bit of a history behind it, which I really appreciate. Thank you. Ramona also brings up Paranormal Home Inspectors, which was a TV show where uh, instead of just sending, you know, psychics and things to haunted houses, they send a home inspector to see how, you know, the doors are hung. and, and if- <laughs> So if we're going to look at everything, we're going to, you know, if we're looking for ghosts anyways, we're also going to look for... Whether your electrical's been installed properly? Yeah, whether you've got carbon monoxide and, and how uh, the the vents in your home work. And th- this is like in addition, right? I think that's how the show works. It's they not have... just like, this house is haunted, now I'm just going to go like crawl in the attic a lot. If this is the show I'm thinking of, it's like a weird mix where they do have like a psychic reader who's like, yeah, I'm feeling energy here and here. And then there's a segment where like an actual home inspector comes in and debunks everything. Okay. And then at the end of the show, they have to maintain this like both sides. Who knows what's really true? Even when it's obvious what's really true is you had your, your foundation settled and it led to some funny stuff happening. I want HGTV to come out with a new show that's on home renovation. Yeah. And while they're like, you know, we're going to knock down this wall and build you an open floor concept, blah, blah, blah. There's also like the people going around doing like a cleansing of the house <laughs> with like sage burning and mm-hmm. um, in that corner. Oh, we can't work in uh, the kitchen today. They're doing a seance over there to try to talk to the ghost of uh, the person who was murdered here 30 years ago. All that stuff. Uh, well, there's your problem here. Ghost. Yeah. 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 But also, speaking of blessings, we are invited to place a curse on Ramona's roommate's cat, Leo. A curse? Uh, I, I cannot curse a cat. Uh, just because I have guested once on Sunday School Dropouts does not give me uh, the power to curse cats or bless dogs. Even if I did have that uh, uh, spiritual strength, I would not want to uh, uh, infringe upon the IP of a show I very much enjoy and, and two lovely people. So you're, you're just going to have to get uh, Lauren and Nico to do that instead. What I can do is say that Leo is very fluffy, but should leave litter box sand in the litter box. I'm, I'm wagging my finger at you, Leo. I'm wagging my finger. Peter writes in to share that their favorite piece of public art is the crucifixion in the Cathedral of Saint in St. Asaph in Wales. I love it because it looks like jerky Jesus. It's a it's a desiccated corpse sort of look that they're going. It is skin and bones. I, yep. It looks like jerky. I am in love with it. So if someone wanted to, like, force us to hang 
a crucifixion of Jesus in our apartment, uh-huh. I would want that. Yeah. Yes. I don't know if we have the wall space we for that much. Do Jesus. not have the wall space for that, but I'm done with it. Thanks. Thank you, Peter. Thanks, Peter. L writes in, and their favorite bit of public art is the Escadaria Celeron in Rio de Janeiro. Uh, it's just beautiful and detailed and gorgeous. Uh, we also get a uh, show suggestion that is. Something that's been on my list, actually, and I never quite think of it. Uh, but thank you for the reminder. And we also get a few bits of, of Elle's personal life. First, the Lady Ezra, a sweet kitty. That's a very cookie. Real tucked up paws. Oh, very tucky paws. But also, Elle made a recent pilgrimage uh, to the Mars Cheese Castle. Yes. And uh, apparently we bought the wrong souvenir when we were there. No, because they sell something called Mac and Jesus. The noodles look like Jesus. The, the, the noodles look like a cross and loaves and fishes. And, and one is, is, I guess, supposed to be the head of Christ. But it is, it is a, a religious-themed mac and cheese dinner kit. Yeah. I like the cat better between these two <laughs> pictures, I have to say. Thank you very much, Al. Bellafon writes in, and their favorite piece of public art is the Millennium Park bean. Cloud Gate. No, it's the bean. <laughs> you have to call it the bean because the artist who made it hates that. Oh, and he's kind oh, and of he's, like a he's dick. He's a big jerk. Yeah. Which, he, he's the one that's like, I've patented this, like, the blackest black of or, black paint. Or the, the people who patented it only allow him to use it. Or something. And so other people have made paints that he is not allowed to use. It's a whole thing. It's a thing. It's a thing. He's an asshole who made a really cool bean. (laughs) He's made a lot of really cool things. He's just unfortunately a jerk. But yes, the bean is one of my favorite pieces of public art. (laughs) Um, And uh, Bellafone also shares some pictures of their dog, Gloria, who just turned two. Gloria's a big, sweet lady. Yeah. Congratulations on uh, your obedience classes, Gloria. Uh, And thank you for writing in. Thank you. You didn't want to share your story about the bean? My story? Oh, the one where you proposed under it? Yeah. When it was like, I don't know, negative 20 outside and tears froze to my face? That part's not my fault. (laughs) Final Gamer writes in. (laughs) It was very sweet. And they will never go to Florida because it is the same state as that doll. (laughs) I don't get the big deal with the doll. But you do, and that's cool. (laughs) It's a creepy-ass doll. It's not that creepy. It's creepy. But they have two bits of public art they like to share. Uh, The first is the Lemmings statue, uh, which was sculpted in 2013 in Dundee, Scotland, to commemorate the Lemmings series of video games. It's those Lemmings. Uh, It's located near the, the building of the creation of those games by DMA Design, which went on to become Rockstar Studios. So the sweet, cute little lemmings are are from the people, or at least the corporate structure, that also brought you Grand Theft Auto. Hey! 
But Dundee is also home to The Dragon, uh, which is a bit older. It, it was sculpted in 1994, based on a local legend where nine maidens were devoured by a dragon that lived near the village well. And a young man named Martin slew the beast in revenge for his lost love. Ooh. So yeah, uh, pe- people pat the dragon for luck, and it was specifically built for kids to, to climb on safely. Uh, the, the dragon is apparently a large piece of Dundee culture. Thanks, Final Gamer. James writes in and shares that their favorite piece of public art uh, was back in 2003 when the city of Oshkosh, Wisconsin, uh, hired around 25 artists to paint murals on lion statues Mm -hmm. um, to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the public library, which had two lions of its own. Mm -hmm. These were really cool and out in the public, um, but unfortunately they've been sold and made less public. Yeah. Oshkosh has been trying to do something similar recently with uh, the lake fly, um, but that isn't getting as much traction, probably because pretty much anyone who lives in Oshkosh hates them um, because they make the lakefront terrible for two weeks out of the year. So thank you, James. Thanks, James. Claritic writes in with uh, uh, an event as uh, her favorite public art, White Night. An all-night oh. arts festival. <laughs> I'll let you talk first. Go ahead. It's just a big old arts fest for anyone to, to do whatever sort of art they want out in, in this event. So you've got public displays and performances going on all around the, the city of Melbourne. A big favorite is all the production displays that turn buildings into screens for visual art. That's always cool stuff. Uh, but her favorite is a display called The Messenger, which is a, a puppet, essentially. It's a 15, 16 foot tall puppet, though, that, 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 that is moved by the work of eight puppeteers. Ooh. Uh, it is a big futuristic angel with projections across its face, wings, and body, and music, and, and it preaches a sermon about love and understanding from, from speakers hidden inside. It's hard to see the puppeteers because this thing has such a big crowd that they just get like lost anonymously and it looks like the messenger is an, an independent thing going through the streets. Yeah. She first found it by accident when walking home. Oh. And so that's... That's a little startling. That's something to see coming around the corner. Uh, thanks, Claritic. Well, I laughed at first when uh, you said white knight because I was thinking of... Someone I know went to something that was like the White Knight Party here in Chicago recently, but it wasn't this, because what it was was you just dressed in white, Uh and it was like a secret location they took you to, but you had to like cart in all your own food and your own table to sit at. That sounds awful. It did. It sounded terrible. I was like, why would you want to do that? Fun secret party. Cool. Bring your own furniture. Bad. (laughs) Yeah. That is a veto right there. Yeah. No. Sounded awful. But thanks to everybody who, who wrote in and, and shared something with us. If you would like to write us a letter, where can those go, dear? Historyhoneyspodcast at gmail.com. And that's where we want to hear your show suggestions. Like we got a few of those this time. Uh, your, your stories, any questions or corrections. Animal and pictures. Animal pictures. We love them. And also responses to our usual prompts. Darlin', what would you like to hear about next episode? So since our next episode... 
mm-hmm. is our 90th episode. Yes. I want to know about your favorite thing from the 90s. That sounds fantastic. And again, those can go too. Historyhoneyspodcast at gmail.com. And while you're uh, also out there getting in touch, why not do it on social media? Uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Those are all? At History Honeys. And the, the Instagram's been waking up lately. Yeah, yeah. I actually posted twice today. Hey! Yeah! You can also talk to other people. I guess it's allowed. Uh, and telling a friend is one of the, the best ways for, for us to, to grow and change and, and find new people to, to listen to us talk about things that we think are interesting, and hopefully they will too. Yeah. You can also leave us a rating and review on wherever you listen to us from. Yeah. Give it, give it, give it, give it. Give us the stars. You direct those algorithms. I want your stars in my eyes. And with that, I'm Grant. I'm Lena. And history's better with with your your honey. honey.